beloved, it continues to be my great privilege. Am I on? No. Nonetheless, it's still my great privilege to be your interim pulpit supply this summer. We love worshiping with you. And uh, we are exploring probably Paul's first epistle, 1 Thessalonians, written to a very, very healthy church. We proceed into chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. Better now? Sounds good? Great. So if you have a Bible, please turn there. I'm ESV. I understand you're ESV, even though the pulpit Bibles are NIV. Most of us are using the ESV. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1. For you yourselves know, brothers and sisters, that our coming to you was not in vain. For though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. Not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor the pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But... We were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers and sisters, our labor and toil, we work night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. We proclaim to you the gospel of God, You are witnesses, and God also. How holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. When you read through the book of Acts and study Paul's endeavors to plant churches, it's a wonder Christianity survived at all. It is. It seems like everywhere Paul went, there are disruptions, riots, persecution. They throw Paul in jail. Paul has his distractors. He leaves town. People are there to disparage his ministry. And there's almost always distortions to the gospel he preached, as if false teachers will come in and spray, paint graffiti over the beauty of Jesus. And the situation in Thessalonica is no different. Worsened by the fact that Paul is whisked out of town in the middle of night by his friends, never had a closure or goodbye with the church there, leaving him open to criticism from his detractors. The first half of chapter 2 
Paul addresses this situation. How does he do it? First, he summons two witnesses. And secondly, he serves as his own witness. And that's going to be the longer portion of the sermon. Paul's writing probably two to three to four months after he planted the church. He's heard word of his ministry being maligned. He's compelled to address it. First thing he does, he summons two witnesses. He's defending his ministry. Appreciate the charges against him. Paul is just in it for the money. Not true. Paul is just in it to get people to like him. Not true. Paul starts riots. Not true. Paul wants to take advantage of you. Not true. Paul has a prison record. True. But for preaching the gospel. So you have to take Paul's detractors seriously. Because in Paul's day, there were charlatans. We would call them today snake oil salesmen they actually bore the title in Paul's day, evangelists. And they came in with a new teaching of some sort, and the masses grew weary of these people. It's like you've experienced this. Oh, yeah, you're just being nice to me because you want to sell me something. So Paul addresses this. And in the first instance, he, he calls two witnesses they themselves and God. Look at verse 1. You yourselves know. And verse 9. You remember. It's a matter of public record. Remember, guys. And then he summons God as his witness. Verse 3. As you know, God is witness. Verse 10. You are witnesses, and so is God. It raises a couple of questions. First of all, what would you have to believe if you called God to be your witness? You'd have to believe God sees everything, God knows everything, and it's really important to God what motivates you. You'd have to believe that God was really jealous also for the honor of his own name. You see this come out in the way Israel's misconduct brings scorn on the name of God. One example, Ezekiel 36, God says this, I'm about to, about to act, O house of Israel, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations. He had a beef with his people because they were supposed to bear the beauty, the glory, the sanctity, the righteousness, the holiness of the name of God and all their conduct, and they didn't do that. You know what that means for you? It means that what you're supposed to believe about God is everything he's revealed about himself, nothing less and nothing more. If you're a follower of Jesus, or regardless, we are all called to believe and to display that which is true about God, nothing more, and nothing less. So you're a theologian. How are you coming, fleshing out your knowledge of God? Are you as serious and intentional about caring for your knowledge of God as you are your finances, your physique, your appearance, your work reputation? You're called beloved to believe everything God has revealed about himself in his word 
Nothing more, nothing less. So we are people that have this privilege, this sacred responsibility of diving constantly into the word of God to know who God is, to think his thoughts after him, and to relish his being. Nothing more, nothing less, but everything he's revealed about himself. If you're going to call God as your witnesses and, and these people as your witness, what would it require for you to believe if, if, if you were Paul calling them to be witnesses to your ministry? Well, you'd have to believe your impact on them last, left a lasting impression. For example, these people could testify readily, my life is better off for knowing Paul. My life is far superior to it was before I received Paul's gospel than it is now. So they're witnesses to, the, to being receptors of the grace of God, his favor, his kindness, his goodness, his ample supply, his disposition towards you that you've heard about all through this service, his disposition toward you of love, kindness, commitment, zeal, regardless of your performance, they were people who'd say, yeah, the grace of God we've tasted and seen, it is so real, we'll bear witness to Paul's ministry among us. That's the first point, pretty short. What does Paul need to do? He's left town, there are detractors. He finds it necessary to defend his ministry. First half of chapter 2 is this defense. He calls these two witnesses, you, yourselves, and God. Secondly, a little bit longer. He becomes his own witness. And here's, why, here's why I want you to think about this. You look at your computer and you go back through your scrolling history during the week and you find out the things you've looked at. Or think of it this way. He's saying to the Thessalonians, get out your scrapbook and remember those pictures we took together while I was with you. And he gives four pictures that capture the heart of his ministry. Picture number one, it was shameless. Picture number two, it was sensitive. Picture number three, it was sincere. Picture number four, it was sacrificial. That's how I divide up what he's saying about his ministry among them. So let's look at each of those pictures in order. Do you see what he's doing? He's calling them to look at the, his history among them and just look at, uh, uh, you guys know, you experience this. It's existentially real for you. Number one, my ministry among you was shameless. Look at verse 10. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. Does not mean he was perfect. Paul never claims perfection. It means he was authentic. He was transparent. He was real. He was humble. He was credible. He wasn't trying to be something that he wasn't, nor hide something nefarious that he might have been. Paul's passion is to start with the glory of God and to say that now that I'm a new creature in God, in Jesus Christ, by the Spirit's work, I can reflect back to God something of the glory of his image as holy and righteous. That's his passion, the glory of God. And he's saying to the Thessalonians, there wasn't much of a dissonance between the glory of God's righteous character and the way we behaved among you. So you realize what this means. Paul's gone. The detractors come up to you and they say, Paul, he's a bum. He's a schmuck. He'll try to take advantage of it. And they would have said this, 
absolutely wrong. We know this man. We saw this man live. He is a God-centered, other-centered servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Stop distracting him. I think this is the verse that captures it. It's verse 12. Everything he does is, look at verse 12, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. To be a follower of Jesus is nothing less than God saying, I am working in your heart the supernatural ability to come into my presence and enjoy my kingdom and my glory. God is the most generous person in the world. He wants to lavish his glory and his kingdom upon unworthy recipients. That's it. He only wants you to share his glory and the benefits and reign and rule of his kingdom. That's all you're signing up for, being facetious. And Paul is saying, I want your conduct to somehow be worthy of that calling. When we first moved to Fort Worth, Texas, I noticed that where the cement driveways meant the, met the cement road, you could get this faint imprint of the contractor's name in the cement. Share it contracting. That contractor was saying, this work I've done laying this driveway is worthy of my name, beloved. The way you speak to others, worthy of the name of God. The way you spend your money, worthy of the name of God. The way you look at people different from you, worthy of the name of God the way you spend your time, the way you work, the way you conflict with others, worthy of the name of God. Paul's prayer is, I want the dissonance between the way you're working and the glory of God in his kingdom. I want that ever shrinking. So the way Paul did ministry among them is a living example. That's why he's so jealous to tell them where his message comes from and where it doesn't come from. Look at verse 3. So he's saying, look, I'm the example of this. Our exhortation does not come from error, impurity, or way of deceit. Error. Everything we said, you can find proven in the Bible. Impurity, there were teachers in Paul's time who would take their students aside, and a lot more went on than just teaching, if you know what I mean. Disgusting, vile. And he says deceit. That was a word used for uh, uh, showing the bait but hiding the hook. There was no ulterior motive in Paul bringing sinners to faith in Jesus Christ. And so he says, in fact, in verse 4, we've been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. His gospel is what God has given him, and heaven forbid he would say anything more or anything less than what that gospel is. And notice how he defends his motives, because Christianity, it's the religion of the heart. Why you do what you do is incredibly important. Here's our motives, guys. Verse 5, we didn't come with words of flattery. That's where we're telling you just what we think you want to hear. Or we're saying something so that you like us. No. He says in verse 5, we didn't come with a pretext for greed. We've seen that in our day. It's the televangelist. Send me your money and you'll get your miracle. Equally despicable. 
Or he says, we didn't see glory from people. The preacher walks in and everyone stands up to applaud him. This would just be, Paul would be aghast at this. Do you see what he's saying? The way we brought you the gospel was selfless because the work of Jesus Christ, there is nothing selfish in his sacrifice for your eternal well-being on the cross. Photo number one from the album. See it? Number two, sensitive. He identifies two kinds of sensitivity that most people in the culture could relate with, the sensitivity of a mother and the sensitivity of a father. Verse 7, we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. And then verse 11, you yourselves know, like a father would his own children, we exhorted each of you and encouraged and charged you. So his motherly care, you say, well, how does a man, Paul, show motherly care to those he ministered to? Are you wondering that? Anybody wondering that? No, because you see a precedent in the way God relates to his people. Isaiah 66, 13, God says, as a mother comforts her child, so I will comfort you. David says in one point in the Psalms, your gentleness made me great. And you get this picture of, 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 of the unbridled power of God somehow brought under this sensitive control in Isaiah 42.3. A bruised reed he will not break, a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. All fulfilled when Jesus says in John 11, come unto me, you who are weary and heavy laden, my heart is gentle and humble. There's a book outside in the foyer for you to take if you want to read all about the gentle and humble heart of Jesus. That DNA was in Paul. And that's why he's saying, we, you remember, we were gentle among you as a mother with her child. Why is that important? Because when you're a person that comes under conviction and the Spirit of God begins to break your pride, break your self-righteousness, break your high esteem of yourself, and you begin to see more and more your sin, how you fail to love God, fail to love neighbor, fail to give God all the honor, thanksgiving, praise, obedience he deserves. When your soul begins to break under that, your soul becomes very frail. And what you need is the gentleness of Jesus to bring you into the strength of his heart to die for you on the cross in weakness for your salvation. How about his fatherly care? What's that all about? It's the role of the father teaching, discipline, and instructing. Son, I've been down that road before. You don't want to go down that road. Son, trust me. I'm a little bit older than you. I've been to school in the school of hard knocks. This is where you find life. This is how you avoid, uh, uh, avoid what will harm you. Good fathers always discipline for their children's good. Third photograph. Sincere. What's he doing? He needs to defend his ministry. There are real detractors. They threaten the gospel. Paul's ultimate aim is not his ego. It is for the gospel's sake. He says, sincere. Verse 8. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you become very dear to us. 
So what's the evidence in their lives, in Paul's ministry among them, that he was sincere? Well, think about how he came to Thessalonica. Do you remember from last week? He was beaten with rods in Philippi. And he came into Thessalonica. He starts preaching. He's persecuted immediately by the Jews around the synagogue. And he keeps... Look, when you do something and there is a severe physical price to be paid for it, and you get up and you keep doing it, you are obviously motivated by something much greater than your own comfort and safety. That's Paul. The proof is the way we came to you. And we saw last week that they embraced those sufferings right along with Paul because he modeled it. They modeled suffering for the other believers in in Achaia and, and beyond. He says, you know how we minister to you under the scrutiny of God. We were there to please God, not please people. God's the one that tests our hearts ultimately. We give an account to God on that great day of everything that we did. We're not, you're not going to owe any human person on the day of judgment an accounting for the way you live and what you say and what you do. Only God. And this is how Paul did his ministry among them. And he says, you became very dear to us. Well, why do you think? Well, in your experience, how do people become dear to you? Do you spend time together? Check. Do you listen to each other? Check. Do you act as if you're in a hurry to do the next thing? No check. (laughs) Don't check that box. They did a Romans 12 thing. They wept with those who wept, rejoiced with those who rejoiced, sought to outdo one another in honor. To me, I'm just... You know, I'm amazed at this church. And because Paul was not there very long, a a month or two at the most, and he says, you've become very dear to us. That's the way your elders feel about you. That's the way Murray and Fritz feel about you. You're dear to them. I hear them pray for you before the service. Let's look at the last photograph. Go back in your history. Go back in the photo album. Paul's reminding them, he's his own witness. The last photo is sacrificial. Verse 9. For you remember, brothers and sisters, our labor and toil we work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. We proclaim to you the gospel of God. There was a price to be paid for them to get the gospel. Literally. Paul had needs. He had bills to pay. He did not insist that they pay his bills. So what does Paul do when he goes into any city? First place he finds is common ground in the synagogue. That's the place where he starts preaching, right? Goes into the city. Excuse me, where's the synagogue? Down the road to the right. He goes right there and starts preaching. What's the next place he finds? Excuse me, where's the tent maker store? Oh, it's down the road and to the left. He goes there, walks in and says, I'm going to be in town for a while. Hire me. I'm a, I'm a tent maker. They say, you're hired. Come on. He says, night and day we worked hard to not be a burden to any of you. That means he's up early, he's out late. This is nuts. As far as we're concerned, this is one of the most gifted, brilliant men on the planet at this time. In God's economy, as God looks over the entire earth, there is no human figure more important than the Apostle Paul. Would you agree with that? And you know what? It's like Michael Jordan sitting out two quarters of the game to let other people play. He stitches leather in a shop 
so that he can pay his own bills and never be accused of saying, you're just preaching the gospel for money. That's how passionate he was for the purity of the gospel. So humbling. Verse 6 sums it up. Though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. Right? Get to the synagogue. You keep your lips sealed for... you. Preach the gospel, they begin to get converted. And what does he say? We're apostles. Pay up. You need to support us. Jesus made it clear the laborers uh, worthy of his wages. You don't muzzle the ox. Pay up. He had every right to do that. And what did he say? All do the work. All bear the burden. All pay the price, and you get all the benefits. Now, what does that sound like to you? All do the work. I'll pay the price, I'll bear the burden, so you reap the benefits. That's the work of Jesus. Because the Lord Jesus, the king of the universe, has every right to demand of you absolute perfection to his law. And in fact, he does. If you want to be in his presence forever, you must submit to God on the day of your death, entrance into heaven, you must submit absolute, perfect, perfect, flawless perfection. Where are you going to get that? Jesus says, I'll do the work. I'll bear the burden. I'll pay the price. I won't demand of you, poor sinner, what you can't give me. I'll go into the sword of judgment. Pay the price of your law-breaking. I will lavish upon you my record of perfect law-keeping so that when you trust me by faith, you lean upon me, you rest in me, you have everything you need to be right with God. That's the gospel. Jesus says, I did the work. I paid the price. I bore the burden for you. You're free. Rest in that. Martin Luther, one, the, one of the great reformers, said this. I must listen to the gospel. It tells me not what I must do, but what Jesus, the Son of God, has done for me. We're all people living, trusting, borrowed capital. We're resting on everything Jesus has done. And Paul is saying, by not demanding money of you, my ministry is a reflection of the glory of Christ's sacrifice for you. What a sacrifice, yes? So these snapshots, right? Uh, shameless, sensitive, sincere, sacrificial. Who ultimately does that look like? It's the beauty of Christ. That you, by his spirit, are privileged to seek to replicate as he gives you grace together. Let's pray. What a savior. What a friend. You willingly, Lord Jesus, said, I'll bear the burden. I'll pay the price. I'll do the work. And it was exquisite in the eyes of your father. You said, it is finished. The work was done. 
everything we need, Lord Jesus, to enjoy our God forever and ever, you are delighted to gift us by grace in spite of how undeserving, unworthy we are. What a glory. So by your spirit now bring to pass in our church, in our homes, lives that reflect this ministry of Jesus that is shameless, sensitive, sincere, and sacrificial, all for the glory of his name. Amen.